apologize now. The Oshawa Native Journal, the only academic journal of the Ojibwe language. Dr. Troyer has presented all over the United States and Canada and in several foreign countries on everything you wanted to know about Indians what were, but were afraid to ask, cultural competence and equity, strategies for addressing the achievement gap, and tribal sovereignty, history, language, language and culture. He has sat on many organizational boards and has received more than 40 prestigious awards and fellowships, including ones from the American Philosophical Society, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Science Foundation, the MacArthur Foundation, the Bush Foundation, and the John Simon Guggenheim Foundation. His published works include Everything You Want to Know About Indians But Were Afraid to Ask, Ojibwe in Minnesota, which was a Minnesota's best read for 2010 by the Center for the Book at the Library of Congress, and he is also an Award of Merit winner from ASLH for the assassination of Hole in the Day. Please help me welcome Dr. Troyer. Miigwech. Kwe maji tayan ni wiojibwem, hajenes, we wenigo wind munugo geji miigwechi wendaman apiji, and enemigoan bajayan, we wenigo damaduan bangi, and endaman de wajkeish chigiangiban de wajdigi kenemenda onishinabe, denisodo tading, we do kudadiang, kwe dashnin wagush, hindigu minua, migizi and dodem, or de gazagasquaji mekag in donjiba. English? They asked me to come, or they didn't say anything about speaking to you in English. <laughs> and we were speaking Ojibwe here long before Englishmen came over here and brought English to everybody. I'm, uh, I'm really excited to be here and, uh, and really pleased to see all of you. Uh, congratulations to all the award winners. I know we're very eager to acknowledge your personal accomplishments. I thought I'd start with a, um, a short story about our local and state history here in Minnesota. Uh, first of all, I know there are a lot of Minnesota folks in here, but lots of people from all over the place, so it might be good to give you a little bit of background. And I guess I should also tell you that although I really didn't expect to be well understood by everybody in the room addressing you in Ojibwe, that it's really important to acknowledge the indigenous people of this place, Ojibwe and Dakota, to know that Ojibwe and Dakota languages are still alive, to know that Ojibwe and Dakota people are here. And oftentimes we talk about other people or talk about tribal history like it's 10,000 years of ancient history rather than 10,000 years of history still in the making. And I remember uh, maybe a brief anecdote to, to share with you. I, I work up at Bemidji State University, which is in northern Minnesota. Uh, it's the epicenter of the universe, even though a lot of people don't know it as such. <laughs> and we have lots of Native students who go to school at the institution. And one of the things we've been doing for the past few decades is having some sort of celebratory event 
to acknowledge their academic accomplishments, to um, congratulate our seniors, and usually we'd bring in an academic person or sometimes a tribal politician, and I said, you know, we should really think about bringing in somebody who has a PhD in the School of Life, who can speak to the importance of our language, our culture, an indigenous understanding of our history, and uh, as well as congratulate them on their academic accomplishments. We acknowledge there's kind of no way to go back in time. There's a way forward, but a way forward that kind of keeps us recognizable to our ancestors. So they said, yes, who do you got in mind? I said, how about Tom Stilde? He's a well-known uh, elder from the uh, Red Lake Reservation in northern Minnesota. He's a great speaker. He was actually the first person named chaplain for the Minnesota State Senate who is not of a Judeo-Christian background. By the way, a lot of the tribal people in Minnesota uh, carry on pre-Columbian religious uh, traditions and customs, and that's kind of different than the tribal landscape in some other parts of Indian country, like in Oklahoma, where the tribal population is predominantly Christian. Well, anyways, they brought him in. He broke every rule for a graduation banquet speech, which should be short. Uh, I have a couple of good jokes and focus on the students. So he spoke for about an hour and a half. It was all in Ojibwe, not a single word of English. And when he was all done, he said, all you people who study Indians, study that. And he went and sat down. <laughs> There's Tom Stilday. Now, I was greatly entertained. Uh, and he had a lot of wonderful things to say, although I was kind of watching the university administrator's eyes kind of glaze over uh, as he went on. But there was a really important message in there, and one that our profession as historians were starting to catch on to. And that is that it's really important to engage indigenous people when we are studying indigenous history. How many books have been written about native people by someone who didn't even spend time in a native community, talk to native people, engage their languages. No one would dream of writing a history book on something German without going to Germany and knowing German and engaging primary source material in German and probably French and English as well. But we've done lots of work on indigenous people exactly the same way. So no wonder it gets kind of skewed and a lot of times native people act a little resistant to it. If the view, the primary source material we're looking at to study Native history is based upon what Alexander Ramsey had to say about Native people. Or Henry Rice, or any, you know, army officer, politician who really didn't have a Native perspective, well, how could you have a book full of Native perspectives? So I've been pretty honored to um, uh, work on this project on Hole in the Day, who's a really important Ojibwe leader from Minnesota. And uh, kind of amazing to me that not everybody knows about him. You think about the names we know, and I guess maybe it shouldn't be that surprising, because most Americans kind of have received the sugar-coated version of Christopher Columbus in the first Thanksgiving and precious little else. That's why the work of 
so many of you in this room has been so important to shine some light on absent narratives. And as I tell you this story, think about your theme for this conference, that we are greater than the sum of our parts. And think about the bigger picture of what we're trying to do with this profession. Because I think you will find that it has a lot more to it than just a local or a state history, but that this is some of the most important work of our time. How do we acknowledge and validate everyone's human experience? How do we provide tools for everyone in this country to learn about themselves and the rest of the world? And we'll talk about that in just a minute. So a little bit on a hole in the day. There, uh, one of the confusion stems from the fact that there are at least a few people who share that name, Bogonegizic. On the left is a gentleman from Leech Lake, which is my home community. He was quite famous because uh, he was involved in the very last battle between the United States Army and an Indian tribe, 1898, Battle of Sugar Point up at Leech Lake. On the right is a picture of the hole in the day from, who was originally from central Minnesota in the Crow Wing region, and that's what I'm going to share a few thoughts with you about today. So as I embarked on this project, um, I guess I could back up and tell you that I grew up in Minnesota and had heard from my own family lots of things about Bagunagizic. It was always a bit of a mystery how the land went from native hands to non-native hands. And, you know, I'd ask a teacher, well, what about the Indians? And oftentimes the teacher would say, oh, that's who was here before. And I'd say, but, but I'm here now. And no one ever seemed to have the answer. So I was convinced that I would go out and find them. Of course, this is a murder mystery, too. Uh, Hole in the Day ended up being assassinated, and I wanted to find out who done it uh, and why and all of that. But as I embarked on this project, I, I also wanted to do something a little bit different. Uh, I kind of emerged, even though I'm a very academic person and, you know, come out of the Ivies into University of Minnesota, I've been a little bit at war with my discipline. So among other things at the University of Minnesota, they require two languages to work uh, in history. And I said, I want to study Ojibwe history. And first of all, I got pushback on that. One of the senior members of the department said, I don't think you should do that because um, you're too close to your subject matter and you'll be biased. My response was, am I really hearing this from a white man who wrote 20 books on white men? <laughs> and as I said I wanted to study Ojibwe people, finally it said, okay, fine. Uh, but I always had to fight these little fights. And... Uh, I said, well, I'd like to use tribal languages. How about Ojibwe and Dakota? And they said, well, there's no, really no way to test and verify your knowledge in those languages, so uh, how about Spanish and French? <laughs> I got to fight that one, too. I usually win my fights, but uh, not always. So engaging tribal languages ended up being really important. I also worked a lot with oral history, and it told so many things. I know a lot of you in this room work with oral histories, too. 
oftentimes it's been a little bit relegated to the margins, right? You whisper in someone's ear, they're going to whisper in someone else's, and it goes around the room and it comes out so distorted you can't trust what anybody's saying. But I found that the opposite was the true, was the truth. That in fact, a lot of times, people weren't whispering anything. Some of the histories and cultural information are told in group settings with prompters and multiple tellings so that if there's any variation or deviation, it's not going to skew the whole narrative. I found that there were native perspectives really vital to a story, and there was a way to fill gaps that nothing in the archival record could answer. So I ended up doing interviews with about 50 Ojibwe-speaking elders from Minnesota and Wisconsin. There's Melvin Eagle on the top there. He's uh, someone I spent a lot of time with. He, he just passed away a few weeks ago, uh, and it was really a great loss. But for example, in 1862, a really important year in the history of the world in many different ways, very, very important in Minnesota. Most of you have probably heard of and read about the U.S.-Dakota War in 1862. It was devastating and paradigm-changing for everybody. But one of the things that's often been overlooked is that there was other stuff going on in 1862 outside of, outside of Dakota, um, things going on in southern Minnesota. So one of them was in central Minnesota, there was a U.S. Army fort, and right when the U.S.-Dakota War started, there was a group of Ojibwe warriors that came and uh, were approaching the fort. Hole in the Day was threatening to take over the fort, to join the Dakota, and this was, in the eyes of white officials, completely terrifying. The U.S.-Dakota War was terrifying as it was. The thought of fighting another tribe simultaneously that spanned way into Canada was extremely terrifying. So in any event, we know that the U.S. Army chaplain's busy writing in his journal, oh my God, we're all going to die. <laughs> and uh, there's you know, only so many soldiers here. There's Indians everywhere. They're going to burn it down. What are we going to do? And then here come another group of Ojibwe warriors, and they surrounded the fort. And then they faced out to protect it from Hole in the Day and other potential Ojibwe attackers. Now, that much you can tell from everything that the Army chaplain's writing and other correspondence, all the archival research. But what it doesn't tell you is the most interesting question of all, which is, why? Why would some Ojibwe people threaten to attack at this really critical juncture? That was really risky. Why would some other Ojibwe people break ranks and decide to defend the fort? And the archival stuff just doesn't answer that question. Melvin Eagle could answer that question. So I asked him, and we're doing this stuff in Ojibwe, and he said, you want to know why that happened? I'll tell you why. My grandfather's chief migazi. It is him and his family that protected that fort. And he had lots to say. Just kind of father-to-son type narratives reaching back there. So it was amazing what oral history could do. And I could spend all of our time telling you all the different ways this impacted the narrative. You know, where somebody, I actually got to live with this uh, gentleman named Archie Mose, who was born in 1901, 
but his namesakes were all veterans of the U.S. Civil War. And he was actually in a community uh, that was pretty isolated. So he was in his 30s the first time he saw a black man and a white man. His children were born in wigwams. When I met him, he was watching WWF Smackdown on a TV in a modern house. <laughs> but talking to him about history was really revelatory. So, uh, so I started trying to weave in and, and really go off of the indigenous view of stories uh, as much as I could and work with the archival information as well to, to get them talking to each other. Get the Indians and the white guys talking to each other in a way they never had before. Uh, language, critically important. There are so many ways that language shapes worldview, more than we'd have time to get into today. The meaning of the name for a place. Descriptive, yes, but packed and loaded with meaning and perspective that would really give you a hint at what Native people saw when they saw a certain place. It's like this with the Dakota words for places throughout the state, for Ojibwe words. The words we have for important things. What's the meaning of a Native name or a clan or whatever? Loaded with meaning. And just to give you a, an example or two, our word for an elder, Gichiaya'a, literally means great being. Our word for an elderly woman, Mindemuye, means one who holds things together and describes the role of the family matriarch. Now, in English, you got old woman, elderly woman, aged woman. How many elders do you see on the cover of Cosmo? <laughs> There's a way that language shapes worldview, and that worldview also impacts language. No wonder no one wants to admit how old they really are. Dye their hair, facelift, Botox injection. In Ojibwe, you don't have to say things like respect your elders because it's built right in with any word you could possibly use. So in many different ways, exploring language was really fundamental to, to getting at a different way of looking at the world or a different understanding of what people saw in a particular historical situation. I think oftentimes in history, when we look at Native history, we've tended to fall into a couple of traps. One of them is we look at the history of U.S.-Dakota relations, U.S.-Ojibwe relations, you know, U.S.-Cherokee relations, or, or whatever. And this is kind of dichotomy. On the one hand, like, the indigenous story can't exist by itself. It's validated by the way that they react to the United States government. In fact, that's still how we acknowledge legitimacy for Native nations today. If they had a treaty with the U.S. government, they're legitimate. If they didn't, they're not. So that's a trap. Uh, and it can be part of what disempowers Native voices in the narrative. But also, it's just not a useful way to look at something as complicated as Ojibwe history. I found that the Ojibwe relations with the Ho-Chunk and the Dakota and the French and the British were all very pivotal and had very deep impacts on every single thing that was going on between the Americans and the Ojibwe. 
And there were many ways, we'll talk about just a couple of them today, but uh, there are many ways that this ended up changing and shaping and causing uh, the narrative that would unfold. I also found that Hole in the Day, who's re really a character, often intervened in United States affairs. Like, get on his horse and go down to St. Paul from central Minnesota, get on a train, go to Washington, D.C., demand an audience with the President of the United States, receive an audience with the President of the United States, and start talking shop on treaties different than how we've often thought about and portrayed this. Uh, a lot of times the primary, the few like oral histories that have been textualized don't tell you the full story. I got a picture up there of the Red Lake Nation flag, and I won't have time to go into too much on clans, but they have seven clans represented there for their hereditary chiefs. If you know Ojibwe um, source material, most of that stuff says that the hereditary chieftainship clans were Loon and Crane, but there are no loons and cranes on the Red Lake flag representing the chiefs that were present there. But try telling people at Red Lake they didn't have chiefs, or that they don't today. One of the few Native nations that has a council of hereditary chiefs that sits with democratically elected leaders in their tribal governance operations. It's interesting. You know about 1862, this is Little Crow, very famous Dakota leader, the image from the largest mass execution in U.S. history, the hanging of 38 Dakota day after Christmas in 1862. It was a brutal event. Our best estimates are that between four and 800 white civilians were killed. Um, thousands of Dakota people killed and many more displaced. The Dakota communities have never recovered. And it is still something that is very tender for Dakota people today. At the same time that this was going on, I had mentioned how there was a lot of stuff going on in central Minnesota with the Ojibwe people, and I'll share a couple of pieces there just to give you an idea of how complicated this story was and how it wasn't just a story of U.S.-Ojibwe relations, and it wasn't just a tragedy, but Native people had a lot of power and agency. So in 1862, Hole in the Day had been threatening to take over Fort Ripley. Ojibwe warriors from Mille Lacs came and protected the fort, so he was unable to do that, if it was ever his intention. That's a good question. And Hole in the Day had sent runners all over Ojibwe country. And Ojibwe country is big. Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, part of North Dakota, and from Quebec to Saskatchewan across Canada. He sent runners all over the place. There are actually 125 Ojibwe First Nations in Canada today. Give you an idea. So in any event, he sent word. There's a war going on between the Dakota and the United States government. And it's time for us to do something. I'm heading down to Fort Ripley, and we're going to teach him a lesson. Now, was it his intention to take over Fort Ripley? It's hard to say. Was he trying to manipulate and gather force so he could get concessions? Probably. There was all kinds of shenanigans going on in the Indian Affairs Office, 
embezzlement. The, the Indian agents had been taking goods that they were supposed to distribute to the Ojibwe, and they were selling them for personal profit. Uh, they couldn't get action on this stuff. It was overshadowed by all, everything that was starting to go down with the Dakota. So Holden the Day was trying to get some attention. And the Commissioner of Indian Affairs is coming to Minnesota. It's kind of like a papal visit. It's something that doesn't happen all the time. So he got their attention. And there were Ojibwe groups from Otter Tail Lake and from Leech Lake who took hold on the day at his word, burned down the missions and the Indian agencies, brought their warriors and started converging on Fort Ripley. Then the Commissioner of Indian Affairs shows up and he says, what the heck's going on here? So they call a big conference. And word was sent to hold on the day, just come by yourself and talk, parley. And Commissioner Dole said, when he shows up by himself, arrest him or shoot him. I don't care. I want him out of the picture. So Holden the Day wasn't stupid. Here comes Commissioner Dole, and here come the United States Army. They had about 100 soldiers. So Holden the Day lined up with about 100 Ojibwe warriors. And Commissioner Dole said, surrender now. And the Army captain says, or we're going to blow you to pieces. So hold on the day, motions. And another hundred loyal Ojibwe warriors pop up behind the soldiers, effectively surrounding them and outnumbering them two to one. And hold on the day says, are you the smartest man that our great white father could send <laughs> in a trying time like this? Because if you are the smartest man that our great white father has got, then I pity our great white father. That was his quote. What a great quote. <laughs> so now you got to think, it's just a matter of when the bloodbath is going to start, right? But then comes a courier, and he's got a letter. And it's actually from British officials to the United States federal government that says, you have a chief named Hole in the Day who is talking about some big pan-Indian uprising in Minnesota, and you better do something about this. Now, remember the context. 1862, Civil War. It's not going very well for the North. U.S.-Dakota War is freaking everybody out, to say the least. And the Ojibwe had a very different geopolitical and geographic situation because they straddled the U.S.-Canadian border. Remember, the British were financially supporting the Confederacy and would have been very happy to see anything that would threaten the sovereignty of the Union. So now you got to imagine U.S. policymakers thinking, are we going to really fight Ojibwe people and chase them into Canada? And bear in mind, the greatest weakness for tribal people in conflicts with the United States government was not their military prowess, or even a technological disadvantage. That started to emerge more after the Civil War. It was the fact that they had to kind of fight with a kid on each hip. And you look at something like Tecumseh, you know, what was going on in Prophetstown, and it wasn't necessarily the military event. People had to run out of 
the village to get their family to safety, and all the soldiers had to do was just burn up all the corn. And that really weakened the native resistance. Or slaughter 30 million buffalo on the plains in groups like Crazy Horse, you know, really undefeated, come into the forts. So this was the weakness, even for Pontiac, another pretty successful, initially successful military action. So now you're looking at the possibility of a native group that could actually put their children in a safety zone where they wouldn't have to worry about feeding them and field what would really be, for the first time, more like a professional native army that didn't have to worry about things like their kids. So Commissioner Dole, who I'm sure is wishing for his nice armchair back in Washington, D.C., says, you know what? Give him what he wants, make it go away, and I'm out of here. And he left. And so there were some new guys appointed. And Holden Day said, boys, sit down. Take out your paper. This is what the treaty's going to say. And tribal leadership dictated terms for a new treaty. Kind of unbelievable terms, if you think about it. The Indian agents were fired. The annuities were paid immediately. You imagine what happened with the Dakota even one day sooner the arrival of annuities could have made a huge difference. The annuities were paid immediately. Soldiers who had burned down Holland the Day's house in the interim, kind of a side story, Holland Day was given personal remuneration for the burning of his house. He got everything that he asked for. In an adversarial environment, pushing, on a diplomatic front and threatening militarily, he got his terms. It's crazy. And there's no way to understand that if you don't talk to someone like Melvin Eagle, if you don't look at the greater context of British and American and Ojibwe and Dakota relationships. There's a lot to the story. And it's like that with a lot of these stories. They're not simple but they are fascinating. All right. Man, I wish the History Channel guys were here. Or even better, some like serious Hollywood folks. But hold on the day. I thought you could write like the movie script just upon this Colt 44 revolver that he had. If you know the history of the Comanche, you know, and the Texas Rangers, the repeating revolver was an amazing, amazing technological development. Came years before the Civil War and, and some of the repeating rifle stuff. Made a huge difference. He received a Colt 44 as a gift from the President of the United States. And to make a long story short, about 15 years before anybody else in Minnesota, he had one of these. He used it all the time. It always kept popping up. The Ojibwe and Dakota really were friends many, many more years than they were enemies, but there was a period when they were fighting. One time, Hole in the Day gets ambushed outside St. Paul by a bunch of Dakota. So he pulls out his 44 and boom, 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 boom. No one had ever seen anything like that. There was another time he was... Um, in a bar fight, kind of. Crow Wing is really a fascinating story. The northernmost 
white town on the Mississippi River for a long period of time was half populated by native people. Hole in the Day claimed to be chief of several villages and the hamlet of Crow Wing. Some of the white people said, yes, he's our chief. This was a big change, as Ojibwe leadership usually revolved around a village. For someone to claim leadership over more than one was different. I suppose left alone for a long period of time, this is the beginning of nation building in a larger sense for people at a village-focused political culture. But in any event, Hole in the Day's in a bar there, and uh, he's talking to some of the traders, and he kind of had a love-hate relationship. We'll examine a couple of how, things about how that works in a second. But one of the traders is talking, and Holland Day pulls out his 44 and he goes, boom, kills him dead. Cold blood, right? Seemingly no provocation. He goes to the Indian agent, and he says, you know, I killed him dead. I, uh, I meant to do it. He deserved it. I didn't like him. And uh, I just want you to know that I think so much of you, and I have so much respect for you as our Indian agent, that I'm willing to submit to your authority. And any kind of punishment that you think is appropriate to mete out, you go right ahead. And the Indian agent says, no, it's okay, go back to your family. Now, Hole in the Day probably wasn't really submitting, and there was a lot of backstory, a lot. As the treaty period emerged, Hole in the Day could see. He had traveled to Washington, D.C. a number of times, like many chiefs in an impossible time. He knew that there was no way back. There was no way to reclaim everything. There would only be a way forward. And so he sought to preserve power going forward. And a lot of the things he did, even today, infuriate Native people, but also kind of amaze a lot of Native people. So one of the things as the treaty period started, the money at first is flowing to tribal leaders who disperse to their own people. Eventually that changes. The role of financial arbiter shifts to non-Native hands. It's a major power shift when that happens. But holding the day held on longer than most leaders in this regard. So he gets money. Now imagine there's um, the history of the French in Minnesota. Holy cow, there's another big story. But the French guys came early, you know, 1600s, and through the 1700s. And they have a very different way of relating to Native people. They only sent men inland, and they said, you marry Native women, and you cement your relationship with Native groups. And they did, and they made lots of babies. They sent the boys to Europe for formal education. They kept the girls in country and used them as bargaining chips in more arranged marriages. It's the French custom, right? And it went on for decades. There's great books, uh, Sylvia Van Kirk's Many Tender Ties, uh, Women in Fur Trade Society, and others that explore how this stuff evolved over time. But in any event, when the British kicked the French out of North America, they really only kicked the French government and army out of North America. They left all their people behind, right? French-speaking Quebecois in Canada, French-speaking people in Louisiana, and so forth. When the British are trying to replace French trade networks, who do they hire? They hire all these 
mixed bloods who are Catholic, educated in Europe, fluent in French, fluent in English, fluent in Ojibwe. 25 years later, there's the American Revolution, and the Americans are trying to replace British trade networks, and who do they hire? Same people. So when you're looking at the Minnesota Treaty period, it is dominated by mixed blood, Catholic, French and Ojibwe people who don't identify themselves as Ojibwe. They might look a lot like me, but they didn't see themselves as village Indians. And their political and their financial loyalties were definitely not village Indian. And then you've got kind of Anglo-American, you know, political officials. So Holden the Day looks at all of these guys, looking at the mixed bloods, and they're running the American Fur Company now. And he says, you know what? You guys look pretty brown to me. I'm putting you on the tribal rolls. You're Indians now. That's what he did. And that bought him a lot of love. So much love that he could shoot someone in cold blood. And they'd say, go back home to your family. So much that when it was treaty time, he usually got the concessions that he wanted. He was outrageous and offensive at times. Like Holden the Day the Younger's first foray into tribal politics, he went up to this treaty in Fond du Lac. There's 200 Ojibwe chiefs there. He shows up a day late and he says, you know what? It doesn't matter what the rest of these guys have to say. I'm grand chief of all the Chippewa Indians. If I say sell, they're going to sell. And if I say no, you're going to get nothing. So why don't you come and talk to me and me alone? That's exactly what they did. In Ojibwe culture, when somebody was outrageous, you sat there quietly and gave them enough rope to hang themselves. But in American culture, if you didn't protest and filibuster and make a big stink, then you must have been in agreement. And Holden and Day knew how to manipulate in both these worlds. 1867, he goes to Washington, D.C., negotiating a major treaty that would relocate most of his people from central Minnesota to White Earth. In the end, that is what happened. He negotiated the treaty, uh, and there was a young uh, white woman who said, you know, I'd like to do an interview and talk to you about, you know, everything that's been going on. And he says, well, come to my hotel room, and I'll take your interview. And she did. And I don't know who seduced who, but it went down. <laughs> Hole in the day is like, I got to get home. Takes off. She's following him. All right? Catches extra trains. She caught up with him in Chicago. They got married by the time they made it to Minnesota. They go up to central Minnesota, and uh, Hole, in the, Hole in the day uh, opened the door to his house, and he had a house, not a wigwam, on a private land grant. And he pushed her in the door with the other Ojibwe wives who were waiting there. She stayed. They had a baby together. It's crazy. All right. Quickly then, who had motive? It's more like uh, the better question is who didn't have motive? 1863, he writes a letter to President Lincoln saying, I understand you want to get land from the Red Lake Ojibwe. I'll go there and represent the United States government, and I'll get you the land. 
Lincoln wrote back, I don't think that's a very good idea. He shows up there anyways. And he says, well, my name's Baganagizhik, I'm Grand Chief of all the Chippewa Indians, and I'm here to represent tribal people. You're not getting any land. The Red Lakers are sitting there with their war clubs. Who the hell is this guy? They walk him out, they parlay, they walk him back in, and he sits there for the rest of the negotiations. The Red Lakers negotiated their own treaty. But Hole in the Day was just an unbelievable manipulator and very successful. He offended the Leech Lake leadership, telling them he was going to attack Fort Ripley and then letting them take all these risks, but never attacking it. That treaty in Fond du Lac, he showed up a day late, so they gave him the chief stipends from Mille Lacs. That made them pretty mad. And there is no such thing as a grand chief of all the Chippewa Indians, so the Mille Lacs leadership were always offended by him making such claims. When Ojibwe people well, when Hole in the Day came back in 1867 after negotiating White Earth removal, he told his people, I negotiated a treaty for relocation to White Earth. Don't go. He said, they're supposed to build a house for every one of us. A sawmill and a grist mill. There's no going back to the days of the buffalo, but there's a way forward. We're getting in the agricultural business. We're getting in the timber business. And if you move, they won't build us anything. White Cloud said, you know what? I'm sick of you. I'm sick of your gambling. I'm sick of you shooting people in a bar. I am sick of you manipulating. I'm sick of your claims. And I'm going to White Earth, with or without you. Holden Day pulls out his 44. You know, he's this big, like, OK corral, you know, looking thing. And then finally, Holden Day says, you know what? Go ahead and go there. I'm going to starve to death. They're not going to give you anything. He did, and they kind of did. They didn't get it, all the stuff they were promised. But there were these rifts in the leadership. There was John Johnson. He was an Episcopal missionary, a native guy. In 1862, he was so scared, he threw his kids in a canoe. He's pulling it down the Gull River. This is in summer, but it's kind of late summer, um, about this time of the year, but just a little bit earlier. And it was cold enough that they got so cold, two of his kids died from exposure. He held Hole in the Day personally responsible and said so, and said there will never be peace in Minnesota until he is disposed of. There's Clement Bolio. He's one of these mixed-blood traders. Man, they were best friends. All the ways that Hole in the Day lined his pocket until it became pretty clear that uh, eventually the Ojibwe would run out of land to sell, and then there wouldn't be a way to line everyone's pockets. As that happened, there's a shift. And Hole in the Day says, the mixed bloods can't be going to White Earth. They are vying for my position as chief, and I'm going to stop them. And there was Charles Ruffy who wanted to be Indian agent. Man, there were so many people who wanted him gone. Well, we're just going to run out of time to tell you everything. You have to go out there and buy that book if you want to know who killed him. <laughs> <laughs> I like this picture because it, it tells a lot. In Ojibwe culture, there's um, civil chiefs, right, who would have this otter skin turban. You, kind of, you had to earn that through hereditary right. Not everyone had them. There were other kinds of leadership, too. 
People distinguished themselves in war, and every feather had to be earned in battle. And by the way, Hole in the Day did earn those feathers. So Hole in the Day is kind of saying, like, I'm a civil chief, I'm a war chief. I got a suit on, I know your American ways, and no one can mess with me. I got a blanket on, because I'm just one of the people. It's like saying I'm chief of them all, right? And even though Indians love to dress up for pictures, he dressed like this all the time. <laughs> and probably unintentional, but there's also this issue of the extended middle finger. <laughs> it's probably inadvertent, but uh, if any tribal leader were capable of making that gesture to the rest of the world, it would have been him. So greater than the sum of our parts. You know, our work is really, really important. There's this report called the Bronheim Report that came out in 2011. It said that America's K-12 educators, only 5.6% of America's K-12 educators are comfortable teaching about a racial or ethnic group different than their own. 5.6% are comfortable. In Minnesota, already over 20% of our graduating high school seniors are people of color. And across the nation, that will only grow. Even Minnesota, home of Scandinavian Lutherans, is projected to have a white minority population after 2040. We have a big issue here. Preparing human beings for the world in which they will live and work. And make no mistake, there are many examples where countries or groups of people have failed to reconcile and create communication across those kinds of divides, and they've been devastating. There's a tension. You saw what happened like with apartheid in South Africa. There's pressure to do things like that here. Arizona Law 15-112, banning the teaching of ethnic studies in the state of Arizona. A state in which white people are already the minority. So we have to be really careful and intentional. Sometimes, and I do this myself, I'll get bogged down in a really focused look at a local story but we have to remember how important it is to shine light on those absent narratives. That the so-called achievement gap is not a failure of any one group of people to achieve, but it's an opportunity gap that we have manufactured. Failing to provide human beings with the opportunity to learn about themselves, their stories, and their places, as well as the rest of the world. In a way, it's like the British have designed our educational system and we're still teaching their curriculum. We are. We teach our kids more about the history of the Roman Empire than the history of this place. Here, in the Twin Cities, there's more than 10,000 years of documented human history. 10,000! And we teach people about what happened after the first Americans showed up. Everything else pushed to the margins. It's not the intention of educators to out or marginalize anybody, 
But I can tell you this from personal experience. When you go to school and learn all about the important achievements of human endeavor, not yours, all about the important people you must know about to be successful in this world, not yours, it unintentionally delivers the message that you and yours are not important. And that is a tremendous blow to self-esteem. And that makes people disengage with their teachers, retract. And 50% of the students of color in this country do not finish high school. The gap between people who have money and don't have money is wider and wider and wider. The correlation between people who have money and have an education is tighter and tighter and tighter. So shining light on absent narratives is a huge piece to not just telling interesting stories, but working towards equity. It's really important. This is something that I've really enjoyed working with uh, on the Everything You Wanted to Know About Indians But Were Afraid to Ask book. Uh, it's incredible. It, Indians, you know, we are often imagined and infrequently well understood. And I learned uh, some of these things the hard way. I, I'll spare you all of my horror stories around race growing up, but there were plenty. Uh, and I got into Princeton University and I thought, yes, you know, these guys have gone to Exeter and whatnot, and they will be educated and they will know something about Native people, and I won't have to hear any of the ignorance anymore. And boy, was that naive. The dumbest smart people I'd ever met. And I came to this other realization, and um, I will wrap this up soon so we can get on with uh, the awards, but one time I heard, I was getting homesick, and I heard that there was a sweat lodge ceremony out in the New Jersey woods, and I thought, uh, this could be really great, or it could be a freak show, <laughs> but I'll check it out. And uh, I went out there, it was still daylight, and uh, to my great surprise, there were about 20 white people waiting for the sweat lodge ceremony without a strip of clothing on, completely naked in the broad daylight. The one had a staff with a, some deer horns and eagle feathers, and he went like this, you know. So I had conflicting emotions. Part of me wanted to laugh, because dang, there's 20 naked people standing around in the woods. Part of me wanted to run, because dang, there's 20 naked people standing around in the woods. Part of me was really offended. Like, is that what they think we are all about? So, being naive, I opened the car door. I was immediately folded into a tight embrace by one of these completely naked strangers <laughs> who was saying, I'm so sorry for what my people did to your people. So now the urge to laugh, run, or get mad is growing. But in a weird way, I. I had a strange epiphany that, you know, it's kind of not fair, like white people never have to be the barometer upon what, you know, which all white people are judged, but a person of color often is in that position. Like if I just went away, she'd be left with her imaginings, but if I yelled at her, she'd think Indians are all mean, you know? So I said, would you mind putting some clothes on? Because I would love to talk to you about all of this. And she did. And we had actually a pretty good talk. 
I think her emotive response was real, even though she was clearly misguided about some things. And I think most of us are like that in some way. Even the native people in this country have gone to school with a sugar-coated version of Christopher Columbus in the first Thanksgiving. We all need more information. So that particular project has been really, uh, has been really a lot of fun, not only to put together, but it's really a conversation every time we start working on the book, you know, doing a talk or something like that, because we all have so many questions, you know, about everything from the meaning of names for places to terminology to, you know, equity issues, tribal language revitalization, culture, religion, hot button stuff, redskins, whatever. There's all kinds of it. So we need some truth and reconciliation in this country, and we've seen examples in the history of the world where it's happened. But truth and reconciliation starts with truth. And that's what you do. And take your work seriously because it is a major contribution to helping make this country and this world a much better place. It has a big impact, more than you know. I didn't realize how many people were watching and reading and listening until I got a lot deeper into it. And we need healing, all of us. And you look at a colonial experience, and of course, you know, the survivors of genocide feel something about that. But so does everybody else. It's not fun. It's not really even comfortable, you know, to talk about. But when we are able to tell these stories, to own them together collectively, not to romanticize or denigrate anybody. Tribal people were killing each other long before non-native people came over here. You don't want to romanticize that. You don't want to denigrate it either. Human beings have been hard on each other, but have also been capable of being really great to each other too. And to me, I think it helps us transition as individuals and people beyond anger and beyond guilt to go from victim to survivor, from decolonizing. You know, it's kind of a buzzword in academia now, but it, it's real. You know, re, to me, it's more the re's than the d's, like relearning, revitalizing, reclaiming. That's the important part of that work. But we can drop off those shackles when we really validate and understand each other. To me, uh, you know, I feel like uh, I'm not, you know, I got a one foot in the ivory tower and one in a wigwam, but I don't feel colonized at all. The work is very liberating. And in fact, in every regard, not just everything that's ever happened in Ojibwe history, but, you know, just the process, I, I feel downright unconquered. And I think all human beings should feel that way, no matter what our background is. And I could share one personal anecdote, and then I'll quit. So my mom always gets this question. We, we grew up in a, you know, she grew up in a town called Bina on the Leech Lake Reservation. If you haven't been up there, you'd miss it because there's 200 people. They're all my relatives. And in many ways, we experienced, um, and she experienced, all the tragedies and stereotypes you could imagine growing up in a native community. Like her house is smaller than my hotel room that she grew up in. They got ice cream once a year, you know, that kind of stuff. 
as you know, the problems of the world engulfed us, it got bad, you know, going from alcohol to like drugs and whatnot. So, you know, I got a cousin who died in an alcohol-related car accident. Everybody knows someone who's burned up in a house. I, um, one uncle is on his way out, cirrhosis. Another one already dead from a drug overdose on self-inflicted gunshot wound, took her out. My grandfather, who uh, was a veteran of the United States Army, D-Day, Omaha Beach, all of that, committed suicide at 86. It's unbelievable. And in spite of all of that, and growing up in this environment, my mom has four kids, so I'm one of them, obviously. So one's a medical doctor, one's a lawyer and a judge, two are PhDs, we've published over 20 books between us, there are no drug addicts, and uh, everyone says, holy crap, how did you do that? And she always says the same thing. Well, first of all, I just don't know. But she says, I know this, I valued education, and not just from books. I made sure my kids knew who they were. I made sure that they knew how to pick rice and snare rabbits. And all of that was foundational. That when it comes down to it, it was just as important to educate them in our ways as it was to educate them in the ways of the Western world, because nothing can stop an Indian who knows who he is. And I thought that was a really great way of thinking about it. And it relates very directly to everyone's work here. No matter what, the myriad of backgrounds that everyone has, you are the agents that can provide people with the opportunity to know who they are. And that validation is critical to success at everything. Miigwech, have a great night. Thank you very much. Show them some more love. Give it up. Who says the awards committee and the banquet aren't full of rock stars? Come on. Thank you again for that wonderful, enlightening talk. Okay, folks, now we're going to turn our attention to the presentation of the ASLH Awards. Um, Anton, I'm pleased to say that um, Bob Beatty and Lynn Ireland are going to join us. They're completely clothed, and they might hug people, but they'll keep their clothes on. So will Bob and Lynn please join me on the stage? Da-da, da-da, da-da-da-da-da. What happens at the awards banquet stays.